Hello, everyone, and welcome to, well, it's been a while, hasn't it? With a Terrible Fate podcast. We're back. We're back, and it's spooky. <laughs> it's good to start with something spooky because it's a little bit like that, isn't it? We 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 fade, but we're never truly gone, and then we just kind of jump out of you no, with like things a, to say about video games. Like a gentle whiff on the breeze. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's uh, That should be the slogan, with a Terrible Fate, we're a gentle whiff. A gentle whiff. That's right. And sometimes a powerful whiff. <laughs> But, but never be on oh, the way. Oh. <laughs> well, that's a haunting stench if ever I've smelled. That's one. right. Well, we wanted to come back because uh, we've both been doing kind of other audiovisual projects, but we always love to talk about scary stuff, especially around Halloween. And uh, if all I know, and especially in the in the podcast vein of doing the spooky episode on Pokemon that you published, I felt as though we had to get back together to put our brains together about yes, some of this stuff. The spooky myth of missing no, one of my favorite things in the world, which I was actually, uh, so I was playing Spider-Man 2, and this doesn't sound connected, but it is. I was playing Spider-Man 2. <laughs> I'm listening. And there were, you know, several things that, so I played it on like the the pre-patched version, the day one version. And then I I beat it. And then I was reading about patches that came out that fixed some of the bugs. Like uh, there's a bug that made Spider-Man turn into a cube, <laughs> which was really funny. Um, sure. I got one that I wish I had taken a screenshot of because it was like blink and you'll miss. So one of the, I won't spoil what moment of the game, but one of the tenderest, most beautiful moments of the game, my Spider-Man model just didn't have a head. <laughs> <laughs> and so not no skin like ac version just proper no, headless horseman it was, it was just yeah he had no it was like literally like a mannequin that you had taken the head off of so excellent uh that was pretty great and it kind of <laughs> took away from this beautiful moment but i will say the testament to the writing of the insomniac team like it didn't take away from it all that much so um that uh, that is a testament and a half it was a beautiful <laughs> if the moment. model could be headless and you're still moved yes i was very moved and uh I think that what it made me think about, because I read about like all these other bugs that people were experiencing, was uh, missing no could not happen today. And mm. it's because it would have been patched out immediately. Like even Pokemon, the po uh, Pokemon Scarlet and Violet and Sword and Shield and all of the, you know, Switch releases and everything, they all have patches and updates where they get rid of bugs and things. So missing no is this kind mm. of magical time capsule where this scary thing was kind of allowed to exist and propagate because you couldn't as the game developer as game freak you couldn't go back and fix it i know you've thought a lot about just the storytelling of glitches and mm. the role that they play in our experience of games so in this era of patches do you feel like there's a certain lost potential for found horror in terms of things that just appear in games that are not meant to be horror because that seems like quite a loss if it never happens anymore i think it's still there it's just different like keeping with the spider-man 2 thing um there is i am well it's hard to say this because it's kind of a spoiler but i won't say exactly what happens but there is a uh not so much like a glitch or a um like a problem with the code, but there still exists in game code now, like out of bounds areas that you can go to where you can see things that were maybe cut from the game, but they mm -hmm. didn't have time to delete from the code. So mm -hmm. um, I'll put it this way, right? And this won't spoil anything. A character who people felt was absent from the game was found in that way, where it was oh. clear that like in a rough draft, he was there. 
um, in a kind of grisly way. Uh, but <laughs> so it still kind of exists. I think you just have to maybe be almost, well, I guess it's not all that different because you just have to be kind of lucky in a different way. Like you have to fall off the world or, you know, search for breaking points or tears in the game or, you know, things like that, which I remember back mm -hmm. a few years ago, um, this analyst for the site, Lauren Spahn, she wrote this really interesting article about the wind waker and she mm -hmm. taught me about a historical concept. I'd never run across the idea of the palimpsest, you know, those oh, yeah. like yeah. the same, yeah. where the same like piece of parchment in scarce medieval times would be used to like write over old things with new things. And so yeah. you get this sort of interesting, like multi-layered uh, object where you can see sort of old impressions over new. Yeah. It sounds almost like cool. this new dimension of like old code overlaid with what ultimately ends up as the finished product is like, I can certainly see that as being very different from missing no, but maybe in the same like same kind family of, of impressions. Same kind of feeling, I think, where it's like you, you know, you discover something that you weren't meant to see. Right. I think that that's the, mm. that's the cool aspect of it that I think is still out there. And maybe, you know, it's evolved with people playing games too, where people who grew up with missing no, like me, they're like, Oh, I bet I could find something weird or I bet I could find like, what are they hiding <laughs> from me? You know? Yeah. And I think, uh, <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. So it's, it's sort of in the same spirit too, as what a lot of people bring to speedruns these days, right? When yeah, they break the game with a million glitches to, yeah, yeah, find different ways through it. And sometimes you find cool stuff like, uh, you know, there's, there's actually, I think that's usually how people find these things, right? Like a lot of times it's on accident, but sometimes it's like, I'm deliberately trying to break the game and I found this weird thing that nobody was aware of, you know? Um, yeah. And I think that that, that's pretty cool. And I, I, I think that when it comes to the horror potential, since we're talking on Halloween, I think that, uh, that to me is like what, what really gets at the heart of something like missing no. Um, and this is actually a good segue into our next topic, which is not as fun as, <laughs> as Pokemon is that I think I've said this before on different shows that horror at its core are, is a mystery and mm. it's something to be unraveled and whether or not you get the answer at the end kind of dictates what kind of horror you're engaging with. And mm. what I love about missing though, is that it's like a secret that you weren't supposed to find. And I've said before, like, I think I, I said it in my Canon articles, like resident evil also feels like that to me where it's like, you're finding something that you shouldn't have, even though it's a massive game, mm. you know, it's a, it's a mm -hmm. huge, it's like Capcom's, you know, one of their primary franchises, but there's something about yeah. the aesthetic and the layout of the world where you're like, Oh, I, I, I found something I shouldn't have. This is not for me to be seeing right now. And the fact that I'm in this is not a it, horror thing, but it's a very you thing. Mm. I remember feeling that way vividly as a kid with the original chain of memories where I had no background context. It was one of my first games. And then you get the reverse rebirth story yeah. with Riku. And that felt like something that was like, just something extra that was loaded onto my cartridge on accident, you know, like it wasn't supposed to be there. Yes. I know exactly what you mean. That, that kind of thing that I would, I would even slot that into the missing no kind of, uh, area because it's something that, um, you know, I will say this, this is what's changed. And that's, uh, that's mm -hmm. what I'm thinking of is that the internet makes things so accessible so quickly, um, that I don't think there's, 
as much time to uh it it's less of a i stumbled on something and it's more of a i'm desperately looking for it <laughs> because i think it's <laughs> there and i think that's the big difference where like i totally know that feeling you're talking about where you're like oh man i i found something that i didn't even think could happen and if you yeah. played you know if the internet had been as prevalent when chain of memories came out you kind of get that mystery spoiled a little bit and to wrap up this this kind of thought on the secrets i saw this great tweet after spider-man 2 came out and it was like a day and a half after spider-man 2 came out and <laughs> kotaku had posted an article that said we need to talk about spider-man 2's post credit scene and like, <laughs> and the tweet was just like no we don't man <laughs> We go a little too early for that. Oh, Let me play through the game for a few days. <laughs> we could do, and we have done a million other conversations about that. Jesus Christ. But, mm. but, but we're here to talk about a different aspect of the internet that I'm sure can stoke your ire uh, just as much, if not more so. I know for a fact it can actually, because I've seen it do this. Yeah. So you had a good segue. I also loved picking up on your segue of um, things that we weren't meant to ever see, because <laughs> I feel like that's as good a segue as we can get into this next piece uh, as anything. And I'll say this. So Listeners, you may not know this about the illustrious Dan Hughes. I do because I had the pleasure of going to high school with him. So in the days of yore, when Dan was but a young babe and video game publications were just a twinkle in his eye, he was known for publications of a different stripe and of a different column known as the Cinema Snark. Yes. Where he would actually, he would publish in our school's paper, uh, all about various forms of cinema and films and what you've seen at the movies. Isn't that right, Dan? Yeah. I, uh, taking cues from early days, internet reviewers, I, uh, and, and people like Roger Ebert, who I have my own problems with, but I like his movie reviews <laughs> at any rate. Um, yeah, I wrote, I wrote these reviews and, uh, if I were still doing that, I, I actually don't know. I mean, we'll see how much I have to say about, a horror franchise <laughs> called five nights at Freddy's, which I watched specifically in, <laughs> in preparation for this episode, because I, in addition to writing the cinema snark reviews, uh, maybe like the most emotional and like screaming into the void thing I've ever written for the site was about five nights at Freddy's. <laughs> And then, I want to set the stage for people who haven't read it. And I know, <laughs> I know people have, and for better or worse, I would, I would say for better, people have been rediscovering it of because it. of this movie, yeah. <laughs> nor should you be. Uh, and I think, I think it's funny because actually over time, one of the things I have witnessed in the broader arc of with the terrible fate is people going from being kind of stunned and taken aback at it to coming back and saying, Oh, you know, I kind of, right. I feel this more than I expected to. Yeah. So, which, which listeners know is one of the many feelings for which we aim in a lot of our work, but I, vitriolic is an understatement, right? There, there are yeah. three things that I want to say to set the stage for this, and we'll link the article for people who want to check it out. Um, one is when we brought on two of our other very thoughtful analysts, Jaron and CJ, I don't know if I ever told you this, but when we were working through some early drafts of their work, um, 
they were interested in having uh, a more colloquial language in their work. They're very interested in speaking to people in the way that people would speak to each other online and for good reason. But some of the earlier drafts included um, some curse words in just their normal dialogue, <laughs> right, as right. we would and as I do on the stream. And uh, in my editorial notes, I mentioned to the men, you know, this isn't really the kind of tone that I've been trying to strike with what people publish on the site. Do you mind if we edit that out? And Jaron, bless his heart, Link to this article. He said, yeah, you know, this guy includes in his screen caps of images from the game, quotations like, boo, get fucked. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, Aaron. I don't, pick yeah. a lane. It's the, you know? listen, so that's one. Every, there's, the, there's the exception that proves every rule. <laughs> You also very thoughtfully put together this series, uh, and for readers who aren't familiar with it, your whole enterprise here was and continues to be this idea of basically doing for video games what we've done for literature like the novel, putting together a canon of works that have made interesting and incisive contributions to the medium and how it thinks about stories. And you were very thoughtful in the way you structured the article, looking at different elements of the game, things like its story and characters, its music, its development history. And one of the coolest innovations that really drew me to the series was the idea of what you called the bonus level section, mm -hmm. where for every game, the thesis was whether or not it merited entry into this literary canon of video games, there's going to be something special that it does and ought to be remembered for on its own terms. Uh, and the series holds up for very thoughtful portraits of everything from little intimate moments to cultural impacts to the legendary bonus level that you wrote for Five Nights at Freddy's consisting of a single word. Nope. Yep. <laughs> I, <laughs> no bonus level. <laughs> if I had to, if I had to editorialize, I would say that, well, I'll get into it. I, I know you have a third thing. So I, let me, let me put a pin in that because I, I think, that was what, like, gosh, was that like five or six years ago now? This was 2017, Man. if you can believe it. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, Last, that October, I would say, I wouldn't say that I've, um, I've aged out of my like hatred for it. I, I would just say that it's matured like a fine wine and I'm able to <laughs> calmly articulate it, which I feel like is more impactful the older I get. Just like, let me explain to you in very calm terms why this thing is the worst. But so you're phrasing at the time, <laughs> if you want to think about ways in which oh, your grown. hatred might have matured, yeah. <laughs> or we can say evolve because you're also pokey Dan these the days, Pokemon, yeah. is you, act you actually, you didn't anthropomorphize, but you, you turned your hatred into an animal. You yes. might or might not recall. Oh, I remember. You said that. You said that a sizable drop of vitriol forms in your mind and is stored away like some sort of hate camel. Yes. And to put you in dialogue with your former self and give you the floor to think about this, this movie, this series, and how older Dan would commune with younger Dan's hate camel for this game, I want to just read for you the, basically what the thesis for this article was, what you put in bold at the time, when really the entire article could have been in bold just by virtue of, of the sheer, just hatred's not even a, a sufficiently Contempt. interesting or vital yeah. word. Yes, the vital burning vivacious contempt yes. for this this game and this franchise you said five nights at freddy's is an absolute garbage franchise that i hesitate to refer to as a game 
And this lazy, predictable, boring dumpster fire has only become a household name because of an incredibly fortunate, yet unfortunate, confluence of events that kept its insipid excuse of a creator pumping out sequel after sequel until even he seems to have realized that the true horror he hath wrought is not in the horror game he made, but rather the infuriating impact on storytelling that his dumb jump scare simulator has had on not only horror games, but also on a large chunk of the independent development scene. Yeah, I mean, man, I, I'm I'm jealous of my own writing because I uh, <laughs> and I should say, by the way, I, I I've only been proven right <laughs> in the interview <laughs> because I remember that was like one of the few articles uh, for which I got some backlash in comments and things. because yep. mm-hmm. um, most of the time on the canon articles, like the common. Uh, comment was like, of course it's in the canon, like it's part of the story, right? And misunderstanding what I'm right. saying, but yes. um, that's fine. I mean, I, you know, I they can. It's kind of surface level and just like Reddit or reactionary. I think, by the way, mm-hmm. you know, were you to publish more articles these days, we would get less of that confusion, which I is interesting. Right. But set that to the side. I think you're right. Um, which is an interesting thing to thing to consider. But yeah, yeah. I think um, people were. I, I very rarely, actually, I don't know if I ever, now that I'm thinking about it, like attacked the creator um, or the developer for games in the past. That was the only time that I did it. And it's because I feel very strongly um, I put Scott Cawthon in the same uh, stupid mystery box as J.J. Abrams because this mm-hmm. um, this world that we're living in is dominated by stories that are completely and utterly predicated on the idea that you will be fed drips and drabs of a story that is not thought out so that you keep coming back to it. I mean, it is genuinely, I would, I would compare it, what we're going through with like Marvel movies and star Wars and all of the big tentpole franchises as -hmm. like a soap opera. But I feel like that's doing soap operas a disservice because soap operas, (laughs) are so aware of what they've done in the past that they comment and iterate on it in a way that like is kind of a world unto itself. What I've Well, made- and you quite favorably mm-hmm. in the past have compared Kingdom Hearts to a soap opera. Yes. And I feel like you would say that approaches mystery and drips and drabs in a radically different way than what you're talking about with Marvel and the like. Here's the difference. And this is, this is why this is like my sequel to this article. You know, if I, if <laughs> I were to do a rough draft, in, in a podcast form. <laughs> yeah. So I think that looking back on it, and I've actually seen this comparison happen on Twitter since this movie came out. Um, looking back on it, I think that what I was so frustrated by, maybe like in the back of my mind, is that Five Nights at Freddy's is, is what people think Kingdom Hearts is in terms of mm. like, it is complicated for complication's sake. It makes no sense. It's written It's written in a way that retcons itself. It's constantly trying to reinvent itself to make sense of itself. It mm. is a poor story. And I don't care about the aesthetics or the world that it creates. Because after that first game came out... It, I, so, for some background, right? Mm-hmm. Five Nights at Freddy's came out. It was a massive hit. 
thanks primarily to two people. The Let's Player Markiplier, who I don't have as much disdain for because I think he's a kind of a good guy, and uh, a person who we both have a lot of disdain for, uh, MatPat, on yeah. YouTube, who I yeah. mentioned in the article, like, I really do find this weird, going, going back to Spider-Man 2, this weird symbiotic <laughs> relationship between MatPat and Scott Cawthon where they're both, I'm going to say, hacks who just were basically like playing volleyball with this unformed story. And we could do and have done rants in private we could do a whole episode on how Matt Pat and game theory have just for a long time shaped discourse in a way that we both hate. Although now mm. I will say people, as much as they're coming around to my article, they're also coming around to like, Hey, I don't think this guy knows what he's talking about. Matt Pat, yeah. <laughs> which is refreshing, <laughs> but it's just this thing that you and I, I know we both share a real contempt for, which is, this idea that like the story will just be hooks and um, mysteries with no payoff. And uh, the other thing that really bothers me, which was only proven after that article is that Scott Cawthon seems to be a very spiteful person um, hmm. and a spiteful creator because even with that weird symbiotic relationship he had with Matt Pat at a certain point, Matt Pat like figured out what Scott Coffin was doing with his storytelling and he put it in the theory and Scott Coffin got so upset that he figured out this convoluted, stupid puzzle he was making that he completely changed it. And wow, to me, really? that's just like a level of no integrity that bothers me deeply mm. for something that makes so much money. And I think mm. that when I think about all of that, like I think everybody owes Tetsuya Nomura a million apologies because you look at you look at Kingdom Hearts and as silly as it can be mm. there is a beautiful through line of a plot and character development that is chiseled out of marble compared to Five Nights at Freddy's so do you know what's interesting me to me too just because as as I said you're obviously pokey Dan also mm. and I was struck remarking because I think you're right you never really went after a creator like this Mm. anywhere else in the publication, nor have I ever really seen you go after a creator, period, in the way that you do here. But it's interesting because I wonder whether I wonder whether part of it is that um, it's almost kind of the antithetical myth to the creation of Pokemon, where mm. you do, like unlike I do, you do talk about creators pretty often in your work. And that was a big part of the canon series, uh, but primarily to celebrate them, yes. right? Celebrate things like the origin of Game Freak and how special it was to evolve from basically the brainchild of this one incredibly thoughtful mastermind and auteur into the massive popular success and also just thoughtful work of storytelling that you see it as today, but right? And this almost seems like... Like to have that kind of yin, you also need the yang of this monstrosity, right? Well, and interesting too, because like as I, as I hear you talking about sort of the negative and spiteful relationship between Mister Five Nights and his response, uh, excuse me, like the the people who are engaging with his work, mm -hmm. whether that's Matt Pat or just fans, right? It almost seems like the perverse negative image of like the positive interaction you would hope for between like creators of someone like Pokemon and their fans and the way in which that fan interaction can actually be conducive to changes, but 
you know, popular and positive changes in the series over time. Absolutely. There's, there's two things I want to note about that, right? So one, I, I like to talk about creators for the same reason film buffs like to talk about directors, because if you're, if you're the creator of a, of a video game property and you're usually called the game director, right? Um, mm -hmm. there is, there's an identity that's associated with that. And especially when you consider, you know, Pokemon is a really good counter example, but another great counter example is, uh, Toby Fox, Undertale and Deltarune. Mm -hmm. And sure. yeah. I think it's, it's maybe, I'm going to lump Toby Fox in with Satoshi Tajiri, the creator of Pokemon, which I think Toby Fox would appreciate, um, in that they never let public, uh, response dictate the story or the world they wanted to create. And I think that's, mm. that to me is important, not just in video games, but in any artistic endeavor, because as soon as you kind of lay into that and you answer to it, the facade of product falls away. And it's like, this is just mm. something to be consumed. And I think that that's lame and cynical. And, you know, you look at like Satoshi Tajiri created Pokemon because it was very personal to him. And he grew up, you know, he was for, from all accounts, he's on the autism spectrum. Like it meant a great deal for him to share this perspective with a lot of people. He loved video games. It was like how he connected with the world. He loved bug catching. That's where Pokemon comes from. Like there is a heart to Pokemon. Likewise, Undertale created because Toby Fox is a weirdo who loves um, <laughs> Earthbound and the mother games. And he loved Nintendo. And, you know, in a, in a beautiful way, those worlds have now collided because Toby Fox is making some of the best music for the Pokemon games that has come out in the last 10 years. And I think that that he's also friends with Yoko Shimomura, the um, composer for Kingdom Hearts. So all my worlds collide. But <laughs> there you go. I think that you take those people and where they came from and you compare it to Scott Cawthon, who I don't know if you know this, Aaron, because I don't think I, I can't remember. I don't think I put it in the article. I don't know if I knew this at the time, but uh, so he made a bunch of like games previously, like little crappy games previously to Five Nights at Freddy's. And I believe it was Jim Stephanie Sterling, the Jimquisition, who wrote a review of one of his games called like Chipper and Sons. And it was this thing where it was like a beaver that owned a lumber company or something. And <laughs> sure. Jim wrote that the, the characters, the models looked like creepy animatronics. And so Scott Cawthon basically from my understanding made five nights at Freddy's out of spite <laughs> to say like, you think my characters <laughs> wow. look like that? I'll show you what that looks like. And I, so you're saying it's spite all the way down. Yes. So I feel like my reaction in that <laughs> article of vitriol and spite is like in line, you know, I've always matched the energy of the creators I'm in conversation uh, with. <laughs> so yeah, 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 yeah. Just like in the undertale article where you leaned into the obsession of it. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's all performance art at the end it's of the day is what you're saying. Well, yeah. And I think that, <laughs> you know, so all of that to say, um, the, the movie, I genuinely, with all that going into it, if this movie had come out six years ago, I would have probably written an immediate article like dovetailing off of my, my contempt. But, um, 
I went into it because so much time has passed. There's been so many games. And mm. I'm also conscious, and I want to make this very clear to our listeners, that um, this movie is coming out now. It's been, I think, eight or nine years since the first Five Nights at Freddy's. And so there's an entire, like, <laughs> the Zoomers, like, love Five Nights <laughs> at Freddy's. Like, it is their, it's a lot of their thing, right? And I mm. appreciate that. And I also appreciate that, hopefully, I think this is true. I've seen it bear out with people that Five Nights at Freddy's opened a lot of doors to other horror games and horror properties and, you know, maybe creepypastas and like great horror writing and stuff. So I understand that. Like it had a, it had an impact on people that I'm, I've kind of come around to. That said, um, I went into this movie trying to give it a chance and trying to think like, okay, maybe, maybe, He's like Gatsby, or not Gatsby. Maybe he's like F. Scott Fitzgerald. Like maybe he's been trying to tell a story for 10 years and this will be it. <laughs> right. Nope. Uh, to, to quote myself. Not so much. Nope. It, <laughs> it is so, like I don't even know, because I know a lot about the series because I've engaged with the internet for 10 years. I don't, from what I know, I'm trying to put myself in the place of like a diehard fan. And yeah. I just feel like, like it didn't make any sense to me, but I knew enough to know that there were changes in it that like wouldn't make sense to a fan. And mm. so I'm sitting here thinking, who is this for? Like, is this for mm. just rant general audiences? Is it for fans? Because <laughs> there's another movie that came out that you and I talked about called Willie's Wonderland. <laughs> and Sure. Willie's Wonderland was made because of the Five Nights at Freddy's craze and it stars Nick Cage. He doesn't say a word in the movie and he goes into like a Five Nights at Freddy's type pizzeria and he's there to like, you know, uh, they're going to fix his tires if he cleans up the building. Little does he know there's like a satanic cult that practice there and they all possess the animatronics. And the movie is just him beating the crap out of all the animatronics and blowing <laughs> up the place at the end. And that right. to me felt more grounded with more rules and more understandable <laughs> character uh, like arcs and motivations than this movie did. To be fair, Nick Cage kind of brings his own set of rules to any movie that he plays in. He does. I mean, there's, yeah. Jo let me let me say this. Josh Hutcherson, who's the main guy, um, I think he's from Hunger Games. Um, he's done a lot of other stuff, but he's good in it. Um and so, by the way, is one of my favorite guys of all time, Matthew Lillard, who, if you remember, Aaron, when we watched Scream, he was the sure. really crazy one at the end. Not the boyfriend, oh, sure. but the really right. crazy one. Right. And, you know, he was he was shaggy in the Scooby-Doo movies. He's amazing. Right. And he's in it. And In Five Nights at Freddy's? Yeah, he's he's like the bad guy. Oh, he's the... That um, kind of bums me out. He's, he. I mean, he's really good in it. But I'm going to say this to quote the YouTuber H Bomber guy. They're both very good with the material they're given. <laughs> because uh, I watched this in two sittings because the first half is so boring that I was falling asleep. <laughs> and the second half, like, I don't think it's because I split it. I mean, it's just like animatronics that are possessed. I get it. But there's no rules like it doesn't like there's so many different tangents in it that are not explained like at one point it almost feels like a nightmare 
on Elm Street kind of situation where like, are they, mm. are they Freddy Krueger now? Like I, was that in the games that I missed? They have like dream powers. I just don't understand <laughs> what they were going for. And the thing that really chapped my ass about it is that <laughs> I, I was after the movie finished, I was, you know, I tweeted about it. And while I was tweeting about it, the credits finished and, uh, there was like this message at the end where some like disembodied computer voice spells out, come find me. And it was just like, Oh, go fuck yourself. Like I hate this, this <laughs> stupid cliffhanger. Like even in this movie, they know they're going to make a million others. Cause it's already made like a hundred million dollars, something insane. So, that is a kind of funny illustration of the dovetail you were talking about between the franchise and everything that Marvel has been doing wrong. Yes. I think we both feel for the last however many years. You know, I'm going to I'm going to bring it back because, um, you know, I don't neither of us hate like superhero stories. We, we were talking in our no. when we went to PAX, we had a great conversation about superheroes and good comic book stories and Spider-Man 2. And Spider-Man 1, because I went back and replayed that one too, are so great because of two main major things. One, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it hooks you for other <laughs> Groundbreaking. stuff. I know. It hooks you for other stuff, but in a way that you'd be content if it never like happened, you know? Mm. And the other thing is that I noticed um there is no tongue-in-cheek writing. It takes itself incredibly seriously. There's no Marvel mm. like, well, that just happened kind of talk in it. And that's interesting. The only thing I'll say for the Five Nights at Freddy's movie, it didn't do that. And I was expecting it. I was expecting like, oh, wait a minute. Are you telling me these animatronics are alive? <laughs> I was expecting a lot of that kind of wink, wink, yeah. nudge, nudge. And it didn't happen. So that's the one point I'll give this. That's impressive. Annoying film. Well, so let me let me ask you this, though. So yeah. you talked about how um, to the younger generation, because as everyone knows, you and I are now old men filled with regret yes, waiting to die. And if you're old enough to get that reference, then so are you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but to the younger ones, they they see things in this. It is a kind of mm -hmm. cultural artifact for them. So speaking from the principle of charity, like if you had to put on your wise old man, Dan hat. Yeah now and kind of, you know, offer perhaps a, a different or more measured perspective than what you offered in the article, which I think we both agree is still worth standing by the perspective in that article. But if you wanted to be as charitable as possible to the people who see something in this franchise, what do you think that is? Like, what is, what is the story that compels? I think, well, I know what it is. And I, I think, cause I felt it with that first one, um, before it immediately spiraled out of control. I was going to, I think I, I kind of went off on a tangent for myself, but it's important to remember that these Five Nights at Freddy's games, like the success was so immediate that Scott Cawthon made Five Nights at Freddy's 2 and 3, I think, within the year of the first one coming wow. out. Because like people were just so hungry for it and he was so, you know, I mean, they're not, they can't be that hard to make. You, if you've played them, you know what I'm talking about. But um, I think that, and I think I mentioned this in the article, the idea that there is a serial killer who worked at a place meant for children and he hid the children in the animatronics is a grisly idea that I think scratches the same itch as a lot of creepypastas do. 
there's a creepypasta writer named Dalek Emperor who put all of her stories on Reddit. And Five Nights at Freddy's to me feels like the same feeling I get from reading one of her stories in the sense that like, there's a great one that I recommend everybody read called Baraska, um, which is like this, it's this feeling of innocence being presented and then ripped away in a way that mm. makes you feel kind of sick to your stomach. It's this kind of visceral fear of the reality of things that can happen. There's not a monster in the first five nights at Freddy's except for a person. Right. And it's, mm. it's hidden away. So this idea, like the, the setup for the first game is that, um, all this like murderous stuff, it was all in the periphery. It was like stuff that you kind of found and pieced together, which is interesting. The main thing about the story that is explained to you is that the animatronics, uh, you don't really find out that they're like kids possessing the bodies. That's not told to you. What's told to you is that if they see you, they think that you're an endoskeleton outside of a suit and they want to put you in a suit so that you are like, you know, you're, you're back in a suit or something. So this whole murderer thing, like you kind of find out through newspaper clippings and it's, it's a very interesting um, experiment in tone. So I get why that's mm. appealing because I've been drawn in by stuff like that. I think we all have. It's what we were talking about at the beginning. Like there's a mystery that you stumbled into that you weren't supposed to find. That mm. kind of conspiratorial horror is really interesting. Then I think what happened was there was a, that was it. That was the mystery. <laughs> like, th and that's, that's good. Like that's a campfire story. That's really yeah. intriguing. Like it's like an urban legend, you know, Hey, did you hear about, you know, Freddie Fazbear's pizza? Oh yeah. Didn't like a bunch of kids die there, you know, like that's scary. Yeah. Right. But then the story progresses and it becomes more of a fantasy where suddenly the murderer gets a name and he has a backstory and he has a family mm. and then there's sci-fi elements. So I think like horror was like a hook and then the kids who grew up with it grew up with the series too in a way where it's like the world was fleshed out and it's become this whole thing similar to what happens with long running horror franchises where at a certain point, you know, um, you know, we've talked about this too, Aaron, like Silent Hill 3 is a good game. It's a brilliant game but it falls into this kind of weird limbo where it's still very horrific and has a lot of horror elements, but it's exploring setup that was meant to just tease you in the first one. Mm. And as soon as you start, I mean, it's like Spielberg says, don't show the shark, right? As soon as you start seeing the <laughs> right. shark, once you know what the monster is, it's not scary. It might be interesting, but it's not scary. And I think that's my long winded way of saying, I understand why people stuck with it, but I don't like what it did. <laughs> you know, that's edifying to me. And I, I do want us to have time to talk about other positive examples of horror and what we're yeah, thinking about nowadays. <laughs> but, but I do, but I will say like, I, I think, I think the long walk to a short drink of water or whatever you want to say was worth it for me too. Because like, I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that has always been kind of hardest for me uh, from the outside to make sense of in terms of this series is the sense that, you know, I, I, I know it's a horror series. I've never played any of the games. I understand they're supposed to be scary, but then 
I feel like it, it, for me, it's a great representative of sort of one of the puzzling dimensions and manifestations of fandom with a capital F that we see nowadays. And I don't mean to belittle being a fan of things. Of course, we, we do this stuff because we're fans of video games mm-hmm. and franchises mean a lot to us, like we've been talking about. But there's this, this sense of, I, I think exactly what you just described in terms of becoming more interested in the world and its lore as such, rather than any kind of thematic content it's trying to impart to you. It's the feeling I get when I walk into a store like Newberry Comics and there's a bunch of just Five Nights at Freddy's merch and yeah. pins and plushies that seem to be more of just like, as you said, artifacts of attachment to the series and world rather than anything to do with sort of the experience of horror that one would expect to derive from it. I think that's that's the thing that, if it was detached from, and this is, a, I guess, a good a argument as any for death of the author, but if it were detached from, it's more than that, though. If it were detached from Scott Cawthon and the, um, you know, grist mill of theorizing, um, mm. then, you know, it's, it's, it's a different landscape now than it was a couple of years ago. And I think it's because people are kind of demanding more from it. And they're being harsher on it, which is good. Mm. But that I think takes away the horror aspect of it. And now it's all about like, you know, I guess it's kind of a Frankenstein story without getting too much into it. Cause I don't want to talk about the whole lore of five nights at Freddy's, (laughs) but that's really what it is. And I think that, you know, if you take a look at Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, terrifying book. But as soon as you put Boris Karloff in green makeup, and bolts on his neck, things start kind of edging into <laughs> fantasy territory, which is fine, but it's sure. not horror anymore. No. Mm. Should we talk about what horror is yeah, and what about, horror you have been lately? Yeah. Um, well, first, I know you've been, you know, you've been kind of living in tales for the past... What, my horror has now? been a more existential one. Yes, yeah. not in the sense of playing horror games, but the horror of fully submerging oneself in a single series. No, no, no. You know as well as uh, the people who have been, you know, reading the articles and watching the stream um, that the series I've been doing is a labor of love for me. But yes, it's been interesting because I've been just so kind of unexpectedly buried in JRPGs. And it's funny because, you know, I, I've said this to people in the past and I think I've probably said it to you where when I think about my identity as a gamer, it's people won't believe me when I say this now, but I've never thought about myself as someone who is really into JRPGs, mm. speaking of fandom with a capital F. But then I'd, a, a funny fucking thing happened, man. We did a whole Final Fantasy VII lecture last year for PAX. I lived inside of Xenoblade for longer than any <laughs> human alive should have, uh, probably including the developers and creators, speaking of them. And now I'm like navigating my entire life through Bandai Namco's amazing tale series, which has been really interesting. It has been like... Um, I guess an interesting study in genre, like we were chatting a little bit about this, getting ready for this conversation. But I think when you find yourself nestled in a study of a particular genre and are so laser focused on it and one that doesn't modulate as much as something like Five Nights at Freddy's does, but is all squarely in the same milieu, you start to sort of see different nuances and glimpses of other genres within it, where even though like... I think few and far between, I would say, is the JRPG that is properly a horror game. Mm. When I sat down and started thinking like, 
and you know, it's spooktober, it's Halloween. We love horror games so much. We've given so many talks on them as, as a publication. Like I, I found myself surprised at how many of like the key and memorable moments for me in many JRPGs are kind of driven by horror. Like think about, uh, it's, it's hard to talk about it without giving spoilers because so many of them are interesting twists, but things like, like some of the Genova and Sephiroth scenes in the original final fantasy seven, yeah. like body key horror. horror. Yeah. Yep. Right. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't call final fantasy seven, a horror game, but so much of like, I, I think for me, I was Big thinking about elements. this a little bit and yeah, well, and tell me what you think, because I, I, I feel like to me, I think part of why so many of those moments are really memorable and interesting in JRPGs is I think, at the end of the day, you know, you can ask what a JRPG is. You can ask what it's about. We've done that. I think at least one thing that they're commonly about is pushing people within a world to understand the nature of the world and themselves in it in a sense where they start out as fish out of water who have no sense of their identity and end up being able to totally like influence the cosmological scheme of their universe in a spiritual way, right? And I think a big part of what shakes people out of their sense of inertia and lack of understanding about themselves and the world is something that horrifies something that jostles and just demonstrates like what you thought you knew is radically untrue in terms of how the world actually works and you should feel unsafe because of that and i think like many of the arcs that i really respect in jrpgs and this is true of the game i'm working through right now tales of graces it does a, like a shockingly good job of this i'm really looking mm. forward to when you play it is like when when you so thoroughly strip away a character's sense of safety through a horrifying moment that touches their life and their self-concept in a way that they don't understand yet like all the stuff with cloud and genova in the original final fantasy 7 then like it feels almost impossible to build oneself back from that. But I think the act of doing that in a way that like ends up in a place that the protagonist actually achieves something positive for the world, even though that's not a horror arc, I think the horror impetus for it is part of what makes that ultimately feel to me like so inspiring and larger than life because it seems almost impossible that you could achieve so good an end from such a like unsafe and um, alienating beginning. I feel like that's, that's made me think that compared to horror, like more strictly horror games, like survival horror or, um, you know, tactical horror or, or anything mm. like that. Uh, the interesting thing about like, I'm thinking of Sephiroth in particular, cause I think everybody understands this <laughs> connection, <laughs> but, um, I feel it in, in tales of Berseria too, which is the tales game I'm playing right now after playing Zestiria. Sure. Um, is that there's an impact on the like more traditional horror thing you're seeing. So for example, the headless Genova or the trail of blood in final fantasy seven, coupled with the music that's really unsettling in the Shinra, um, in the Shinra building. Um, that is so jarring because it's not what you're used to up to that point, but it remains jarring on subsequent playthroughs because of the kind of character uh, implications that you're aware of after playing mm-hmm. through the story. Whereas I feel like, mm-hmm. so JRPG almost like uh, the, the horror that presents itself there is like the, it's this kind of cyclical thing where 
the character development or the philosophical problems that you're running through are mirrored by the actual like scary visuals. And then yeah. it never really gets the edge off of those scary visuals because you're always thinking of the connection to the character who's seeing it. Whereas like, for example, so one of the games that I've played recently, the resident evil four remake, which was amazing. Um, mm. very scary on the first playthrough. <laughs> And then you and then you know what's <laughs> yeah. happening because all of Resident Evil is a boo haunted house. So once the boo haunted house is gone, <laughs> sure. it's an action game, you know, which is fine. It's great. Yeah. It's amazing, but it's not the same as seeing the Trail of Blood in the Shinra building, even after you've played the game mm. for the for the first time. Absolutely, um, I revel all the time in how replayable and designed for replayability the Tales games are, yeah. and I think without any spoilers, if you know, you know, and I know, you know, Dan, something like, um, discovering Prisea's dad and understanding that oh. in Tales of Symphonia, right? Ghoulish. Horrifying, ghoulish, distressing. Um, but those games in particular, even amongst JRPGs are so concerned with character study. Mm. And so I, I completely resonate with what you're saying. It's really not until like the second or even third playthrough where you understand it, it's like, it's the difference between being horrified at the experience you didn't expect as a player, which is very true to horror games and horror storytelling more broadly, and then understanding the horror from the perspective of the character because of what it means in the context of their life and what they're going through. And so Prisea, for instance, you know, understanding what the discovery of her father means in terms of her family dynamics her, her understanding of how she's been growing up or not growing up her past exactly all of these things which exist in conversation with one another her past and also i mean if, if final fantasy is rife with this too like the horror that people did unto her for that to be sure. a reality yes. right i think that yeah. that to me is it's more of a um i, I recently watched fall of the house of usher on Netflix, which is this mm. really great Mike Flanagan adaptation of pretty much all of Edgar Allan Poe's work. And it made me go back and reread Edgar Allan Poe for Halloween. And I feel like mm. that's the kind of horror, the kind of almost, um, I guess Gothic horror is, is a good word for it that we're talking about here where like, I think about, mm. uh, just this, this dull throbbing sense of malaise that comes with it when you're starting. It's not really like an existential dread or anything like that. It's more of like a man, the more I think about what led to that thing I'm seeing, the more horrified I am by it. And mm, I think yeah. that that's what JRPGs do so well. So I, and I just from the few tales games that I've played now, cause I've played Arise, Symphonia, uh, Zisteria. Now I'm working through Berseria. They all have things like that, that stick out to me that I would call yeah. like horror moments because of how terrifying it is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You've played some that are pretty, uh, pretty well, I mean, they all have a lot man. of those moments, but yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Um, held all's hand again. I mean, so if scary. you already know, <laughs> yeah. Oh Jesus. Yep. So let me ask you like, well, actually let me ask you a, a warm up question because I know while I've been in my, uh, um, my my Therian's pit, to use an example from uh, Tales of Berseria of JRPGs. You've been off gallivanting on many different adventures, some Spidey themed, some otherwise. Yep. Lies of P. Is that a horror game? Yes. It's, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, Lies of P is awesome. 
um, if anybody was on the fence about it because you thought it was, oh, it's like a Bloodborne clone. First of all, I would say to you like, yeah, great. <laughs> Go play a Bloodborne clone. <laughs> right. But um, it feels like, so I, I think that it helped that I had, um, I had recently within like this year watched Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which is, okay. it's so good. Um, it's on Netflix mm. and it's uh, beautifully animated. Um, like stop motion animation. Was that also a recent film or did he do that a while ago? No, it was, uh, I think last year it came out. Mm. Um, amazing. It's got like, uh, like Christoph Waltz plays Volpe in it. Um, it's mm. this really great, uh, take on, um, the old kind of Pinocchio story. That's very different from the Disney version, obviously. <laughs> um, but you know, when you, when you, when I watched that, I was, um, struck by how dark the story is, not in the sense of like, you know, oh, it's, it's not a Disney fairy tale, you know, it's, a, it's an old, but, but really, I mean, like, it's a story about, um, so Geppetto in the original story loses his son, Carlo, and he creates Pinocchio out of grief. And, mm. um, his grief and his love bring Pinocchio to life, but then he has to reckon with the fact that this facsimile of his son is now walking the earth and it's, um, wow. and he's not like Carlo, you know, um, which is even harder for Geppetto and lies of P really explores that in a way that I think is so cool. And it's like, it takes the kind of dark souls, um, and, uh, Miyazaki and also like the berserk Miura um, aesthetic and perspective and tells this really great like further retelling of Pinocchio that um, feels like a really great old morality tale um, mm. with you know Bloodborne style fighting and enemy types in it. It's very fun. So That sounds very fun and certainly yeah. enough to differentiate it from Bloodborne. I find Definitely. myself wondering like for for just horror and just for popular media more broadly, is there anything interesting to be said, do you think, for something like Pinocchio being so back in the zeitgeist that, you know, Del Toro has done something with it recently and now we have this game that made a splash? Like, I immediately think maybe this is kind of pedestrian about, you know, I, I guess the two main things being sort of the implications of artificial life uh, and then also just like, the utility and impact of lying in a world that has kind of been just totally terraformed by, you know, everything that social media and mass media have done in terms of truth and truth aptness for the, for the statements of people. But it's, I don't know if there's more to it than that, or if there's anything to that. No, there's a lot to that, especially in lies of P I think, because I, I, you know, we've been kind of beating the drum of, um, the player avatar relationship and NPCs and things like that for years. Sure. Um, and I think that Liza P, P takes it into a really interesting direction where it kind of takes for granted that you understand that, okay, the reason that Pinocchio is special is because you are imbuing him with agency. Um, mm. And Geppetto understands that in the game too. And he's almost fighting against it. Um, mm. And there's a lot of really interesting commentary there. But then also... The setup of Lies of P, because it's a little more story forward than a, than a Dark Souls or a Bloodborne, is yeah. that um, this city called Krat 
was basically living it feels like bioshock i think i said that to you when i started it like it yeah. it starts uh, all of these puppets quote unquote are created by geppetto and peddled by some other kind like some wealthy industrialist whose name i forget um but this whole place was like populated with these puppet servants like they did everything around town and you get to see all of these different stories of how people reacted to them and how they appreciated them and things like that but the reason that pinocchio is different is because he not only looks human because all the other puppets kind of look like clockwork robot people he looks mm. human he looks like geppetto's son carlo but he's he's also capable of lying and so it's very much like an isaac asimov i robot kind of story where all the other mm. puppets can't lie so yeah. you get this great juxtaposition of what it means to be human is to actually like be capable of deceit and mm. um, how is that used for people's benefit? How is it used to soothe people? It's a really deep story that I think um, I've seen a lot of really cool writing about it online. And I think that there's like a million different ways you could look at it, but it definitely kind of talks about, you know, the morality of lying and, the endings interrogate that too, you know, is it, is it good to lie in certain circumstances or should it always be condemned? Which on the one hand kind of sounds pedestrian, but it presents it in a way that an old morality tale would, which makes you really question what it means to lie to people in different circumstances. Reminds me too of something else that is not horror, but I know we both have a lot of love for the invention of lying. Yeah. Yes. It, it, yeah, <laughs> actually it did. It did have a lot of moments like that which is uh, the, hmm. the old Ricky Gervais movie, The Invention of Lying, where one man can lie all of a sudden. <laughs> I, uh, I, yeah. This is apropos of nothing but Ricky Gervais, but I, I just did my umpteenth rewatch of Afterlife, which absolutely holds up. Mm. Um, a great Ricky Gervais TV show on Netflix for any, anyone who's interested in another thoughtful philosopher artist's commentary on the world. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it definitely that's a really good comparison to like his work because it definitely, um, it tugs the same heartstrings that his commentary on humanity often does in like afterlife or Derek or his movies. So yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's a very good game and it's, uh, it's a really fun kind of, I wouldn't call it like spooky or scary, but it's very, uh, Halloween atmosphere driven <laughs> just an old I like old that Halloween. and sometimes honestly I mean I feel like that's almost more of what I'm I'm looking for out of Halloween and horror stuff I mean we've talked before in lectures about horror games like many of what I take to be the most interesting horror games are those which I guess you would call psychological horror but are really yeah. just those that get you reflecting as opposed to primed for jump scares because kind of like you were saying with Resident Evil like those can be fun games, but oftentimes they like, you have to wait a while until you forget things to replay them and dwelling on them. Doesn't oftentimes stoke the horror or open up new dimensions for it in the same way for me, at least. No, I agree. I think I love, I love resident evil. Like I said, I played through, uh, the RE4 remake a lot and, uh, you know, it's, it's great. It's a lot of, great scares and a lot of really horrifying body horror speaking of which um <laughs> it's awesome but yeah it's not like silent hill where you're thinking about it afterwards <laughs> it's 
very particular. So let, let me ask you this on a more on a more positive note mm. as we're wrapping up on an hour here. So we, we started out with the evolution of Dan Hughes's ire, maybe evolving to something different than for Five Nights at Freddy's, but certainly not especially positive, no, <laughs> maybe more sure. uh, <laughs> resignedly understanding or something yeah. like that. But yeah. let's, let's swing the pendulum to the more positive direction, right? I mean, we've been playing video games since god was born um <laughs> and we've been talking about horror video games really since the well prior to the conception of with a terrible fate but we've we've spoken about a range of games throughout you know lectures and many different venues over the last decade or so so as you think about you know what you're playing now horror wise what's got you interested not just in spookiness but also in terms of what the storytellers of the game world seem to be focused on and meditating on now versus what they were 10 years ago, 15 years ago. What has you excited? What trends do you feel like are, are evolving or going in interesting directions that can stoke the spookiness, but also just the value of horror for video games more broadly? I, I, well, first of all, I love that horror is as big as it ever was. Um, for as much as I, you know, don't like that five nights at Freddy's movie. I'm glad that it's doing well because what I hope that says to producers is what the Bloomhouse movies have been saying for years. Like you can make a movie for like $5 million and make your money back a hundred <laughs> times. Right. Um, so maybe we'll get more interesting, tiny movies, which is always good. Um, I think it's the same with horror games right now where I love experimentation I feel like games now, horror games, there's the big flashy ones. Like I love that Resident Evil is kind of having this renaissance um, because they are important. Like they are very, uh, I, I wrote this about, I, I wrote this about them in Dead Rising, that they're like the B movies of video games. And that's really important. <laughs> yeah. um, and they're so well done. Um, but I think that like, I'm really excited for, the Silent Hill 2 remake, even if it sucks, I'm really excited to see what that looks like because it's been, we're in an era now, I think, where we are recognizing that horror is a really good avenue for trying new things while also commenting on things that we really like to the point mm -hmm. where it doesn't seem like a rehash so much as it does a revisit for a lot of things. Like, Resident Evil 4 remake um, does this great job of making you feel like you did when you played Resident Evil 4 20 years ago. Only now it's like, you know, I guess the best way to put it is we're in an era where like we're, we're telling the same stories, but it's a different storyteller telling them. And so we get, oh, yeah. we get this great, again, kind of campfire retelling where it's like, this is how I understood the story, or this is how I heard it, or this is how I wanted it to go. And I think yeah, like bringing the oral tradition all the way back around into the latest innovation. Absolutely. So I love that. Like another game that I played, this is months ago now, but, um, the people who did until dawn put a game out called the quarry. And, hmm. um, that was silly schlock 
all the way through. <laughs> but it was great because unlike Until Dawn, which I think still makes me feel sick to my stomach when I think about it, um, the quarry exists in this other dimension where it's like, all right, <laughs> Until Dawn is like one of those creepy pastas I talked about, like sits with you for a long time, makes you scared of things that you didn't think you were scared of. Like it's a great horror story. The quarry is like, all right, I went to uh, summer camp and they told me this story and it was stupid, but also I started thinking about it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> it's like us when we watched that, um, the rental in, in PAX, yeah. at PAX West. <laughs> How we were like, oh, that was kind of dumb. But then afterwards, we were like, and then oh, we kept thinking it. about yeah. it for like three days afterwards. <laughs> yeah, good movie. Like, oh, though. still dumb, but interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sometimes that's what I like out of horror all the more so. Well, fun too. Like I, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, if it sticks with you, I mean, what more do you want? Right. So I think, um, yeah, any story where you're still thinking about it is great. And I love that so much horror now. I feel like, listen, I think the only thing that matters for good horror is if it takes itself seriously. It, it, I, unless you're doing, like a parody, like, no, I'm not even going to say that because I was going to use the movie Tucker and Dale versus evil, which is a great film. <laughs> um, okay. and I was going to say like, that doesn't take itself seriously, but it does. It's parody of like the, um, backwoods hillbilly cabin genre in a way that is smart and fun and doesn't like have its tongue boring a hole through its cheek. So the quarry <laughs> does the same thing. Um, you know, even silly horror games, if they believe, if they believe the world that they're in, they're good. And they make you think about it afterwards. So have a beginning, middle and end yes. and care about those things are the radical storytelling take, lessons we've arrived take at. Take your story seriously. <laughs> Otherwise, why should I? <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah, I, I never would have guessed that. I was going to say, I, just, I also love the fact that you bring up Silent Hill 2 and the the coming new version of, of it, because I feel like the more you're talking about sort of the modern horror moment in which we find ourselves for the, the broader genre, but also for video games, it kind of almost feels like in some ways, I mean, you would know better than I, but I would almost call it the silent Hill moment in the sense that if you think about what silent Hill is and it's aptness for this kind of retelling, like it's a, it's a spooky town that punishes people in whatever way they need at the moment. Right. Yeah. And so it, it's kind of like, it's perfectly thematically designed for this idea that even if you're seeking out the exact same kind of horror, when you're at a different moment in the world, a different context in your life, it shouldn't look exactly the same. And it should have memory for the other stories you've experienced and how you're living with them now uh, as someone who has gone through changes in one's own life. I think, I think that's a really good, way to put it and why I'm so excited for it. Because again, like even if it's, even if it's not great, you know, I think what Final Fantasy VII Remake taught us is that, um, well, we already knew it, but taught everybody, I guess, <laughs> that um, right. that the story as you experienced it doesn't go away when somebody tells it again. And so I think what you should look for in those retelling, because we're, I mean, it's all the stories are, cyclical anyway like what you should look for is the interesting angle i think like my favorite thing in a horror movie or a game or a book is when i say out loud not even like oh man that's scary but i just go oh it's a great idea you know <laughs> that's my favorite yeah. 
kind of thing. And I think that if Silent Hill 2 Remake can have me do that once, then I'll probably enjoy it. It's like that feeling we had uh, to call out another movie that we watched during PAX West when we were watching The Perfection and we looked at each so other good. and said, oh, is it going to do this? Yeah. And it did exactly it did. that. Yeah. Yeah. And we were like, yeah. The moment where you you call the twist or the idea like a second before mm-hmm. it happens is beautiful. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's all I want out of a horror story. Just make me feel really good about anticipating it a moment before it happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm a petty small man too, Dan. There are many of us out there. That's what we've learned. But yeah, if you take anything from our spooky Halloween episode, um, I I watch Five Nights at Freddy's or don't. I don't care. I (laughs) who cares? Tell it. You know what? I I look forward to people ten, fifteen years our junior telling a really cool story. You know, like there's here's here's the upside, right? Here's the the Mm. positive spin I'm going to give it. Um, not that Earthbound or Mother is bad because it's far from it. It's brilliant, right? But Five Nights at Freddy's will spawn a Toby Fox at some point mm. down the line who will make yeah. a story that is way better and way more interesting. Take all the things they liked about it and do exactly what we're saying right now, which is I'm going to tell the story like I think it should have been told or like I wanted it to be told. And yeah. I'll probably like that a lot <laughs> would be my guess. I love that. That's such a nice optimistic note. And also, I mean, something we could do a whole other podcast episode on, but that idea that, you know, when, when kids grow up with games and the interactive medium is their primary mode of conceiving of stories, it's like they're very naturally embedding some of their formative experiences and the things that they do in particular stories. And so the people who grow up to want to write reinterpretations or commentaries on stories, I think when it comes to games are like, all the more incentivized to do that as a mode of like adjudicating with and wrestling with their own past, which is a great recipe for great writing and reflection in the first place. Right. So I think we could do a whole interesting study on games that are the way they are because of the personal experiences that the creators had with other games. And as we get a longer game history, I'm sure that's only going to propagate. It's exciting. So for all of you spooky listeners, Enjoy, enjoy Halloween and uh, let me see I'm going to say I'm going to give it let's do this let's give a game recommendation and I'm going to do a movie rec too um, okay movie rec I'm going to say uh, watch <laughs> watch the sadness <laughs> and then uh, write me upsetting mail <laughs> Sadness, oh no the sadness is awesome but it's a uh, fair warning it's gross but i would watch is that one you've told me about or is that a yes a, one we haven't talked yeah, about okay yeah that's um uh <laughs> talk about like a moment that sticks with you where you go oh my god that's such a good idea but um oh. yeah it's a great great movie great chinese film i think um and uh worth your time if you can handle some pretty gross stuff but i would recommend that and then for a game, um, for Halloween, I would say play the quarry. <laughs> it's like a perfect, <laughs> perfect Halloween game. I would say, um, huh. well, if anyone else is in the same boat as I was, since we're doing movies and games, I suppose, uh, and has a lot of holes in their classic cinema knowledge <laughs> and is interested in filling them in a fun way. I watched 
I forgot if I told you this. I watched Alien for the first time oh, last month. You did not tell me that. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we could talk for another five hours about that. But yes, talk about a great experience, which was almost all the more fun for never having had it as a kid yeah. and just going back and seeing it through all the different cultural overlays in terms of everything that has come after it. Speaking of stories that inspire a million storytellers. Each, oh, there yeah. must have been so many moments where you're like, oh, that's where that's from. <laughs> yep. The penis face that set a thousand stories, <laughs> yeah. as uh, as they say. Oh my God. Yeah. So that was fantastic. Uh, do yourself a favor and watch Alien if you never have. And then what I would say for games, um, living in my own little tales world, but I would even, I would give you this rec too, Dan. I would say like, take five hours. So it's, it's a long JRPG, but take five hours because it is such a perfectly horrifying experience to play through just like, what I would call the first chapter of Tales of Graces, mm. because I think, and I spoke about this last week, but especially in terms of the JRPG feeling of horror that we talk about, um, it is the most remarkable, shocking and unnerving representation to me of childhood trauma Ooh. in a way that you do not expect, you cannot be prepared for it, and just the whole context and thematic um, overlays of the story turns on a dime so quickly in a way that I think is like a great storytelling mechanism for setting up everything that comes after it. But also just like, well, here's another experience that I know we talk about in stories, like when they somehow pull together all of their elements to perfectly capture the what it's likeness of a very specific personal experience. Mm. This does this for like the most uncomfortable and like truly traumatizing childhood experiences where just, you know, instantly by virtue of what happens, even if you can't explain it, that nothing in your life is ever going to be the same and you can't go back that kind of loss of innocence. Uh, I'm excited now. I'm excited to be sad. <laughs> <laughs> just play five hours. It'll you'll want to play through the rest, but it's like That's it's like enough. a little devastating short story, and and the rest of the game is just working through the aftermath of it. Really, I love that. I think, uh, yeah, underrated the kind of trauma story. It's a good. It's a tried and true one. <laughs> it works. Um, and we're back at Silent Hill too. We're back. It's all Silent Hill too. <laughs> well, excellent. Enjoy Halloween. Uh, watch spooky movies, play spooky games, and uh, you know, look forward to more content from With a Terrible Fate as always. And uh, Aaron, do you want to plug? Um, I'm sure everybody listening knows about the stream, but do you want to plug it anyway? Yeah, absolutely. We're always doing fun things on With a Terrible Fate. Um, I've been doing the Tales of Praxis stream, uh, basically live book clubs for various games in the tale series, sometimes with fun guest stars, basically anyone who pots in at my house, uh, including Dan. Um, so we do that. Yeah. Wednesday and Monday and Friday, not always in that order, but you can tell <laughs> it's been a long day for me, uh, starting at 7 PM Eastern. Yeah. And it's going to be a fun, uh, a fun coming week after this one, because, uh, Namco has a new Tales DLC coming out for Tales of Arise, so we're going to oh, have some extra streams week? on the menu to work through that uh, next week. Oh my on the god! Seventh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll talk if you uh, yeah if you want to do some kind of like virtual engagement with it, we could always pop you onto the stream or something. Yeah, but, that'd be fun. I yeah. didn't realize it was so. Yeah. I thought it was next year for some reason. Oh man. Okay. Nope. It's it's sneaking up, and I've got a feeling. I uh, 
I don't want to jinx us one way or another, but I have a nagging hunch that even though it's about to be November, we could see Elden Ring DLC before the end of the year too, just because yeah, I, I know I, Namco and I'm suspicious. That. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of horrors, but good horrors. Yeah. So we're doing that. Um, Dan, I don't know if you have any plan for where uh, Pokemon Rose is going next. If you want to talk about that, not to put you on the spot. Yeah, no, uh, I think so. I did the missing no episode, which is my spooky, spooky time one. Um, and, uh, what I'm going to do next is kind of, I think it's going to be a multi-part kind of arc for wrapping up the diamond pearl platinum series and getting back to that. Cause I took a little bit of a hiatus. Um, but we're going to do that. And then, uh, after that, we're going to see how worlds kind of collide a little bit. So if you listen mm. to my show you'll know that quote unquote season one ended with a uh mysterious figure uh having an episode <laughs> of his own and uh, we might be seeing him again so it's all coming together for my master plan as a i'm super fucking excited about that i mean i know you know this i know you know this but i yes i'm i'm not i'm not just the editor of the publication that publishes this. I'm also a super fucking fan of this podcast series. So as much as anything, I'm excited just to digest wherever it goes next. Well, I know that's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. So good stuff uh, coming the down the pike. Always. Yep. All right. Well, then we will talk to you all next time. In the meantime, have a safe and happy Halloween and uh, take care of yourselves. Game well and game spookily, my friends. Ooh. Ooh.